Hey y'all, welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. Akemini, Michelle, and Christina are here at the table. Well, actually, technically, Michelle's not here. <laughs> but you all know that this table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, Christina. Where is Michelle? Oh, Michelle <laughs> is super busy in St. Louis. I believe that she's been pretty involved in, in two big projects. She's consistently working around uh, bringing yes. attention to issues of injustice around bail, uh, as mm-hmm. well as working with uh, homeless population um, in St. Louis and finding um, safe housing, right, because of the cold conditions. Yes. So really important work. So we absolutely miss her today, but we are hardly ever without a third voice at the table. And today we are excited uh, to have our guest who I think um, has made a great academic contribution. And so I'm really excited for our listeners to hear a bit about his work um, and the important topic that we're looking at during this series you mind doing an introduction to Kimini? Yes, yes. Now, well, you all know that we are still in our Reparations Now series, and it's been very informative, I hope, for you all, <laughs> and very interesting topic uh, for all three of us at the table. And so we are honored to have uh, Dr. William A. Sandy Darity Jr. here with us at the table, y'all. Awesome. Um, and so... Welcome to the table, Sandy. Let me introduce and read your amazing bio (laughs) to our listeners so they know who is at the table with us. Now, uh, Dr. William Darity Jr. is the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics at Duke University. He is the founding director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity, and he has served as chair of Duke's Department of African and African-American Studies. Darity's research focuses on inequality by race, class and ethnicity, stratification economics, schooling, and the racial achievement gap, North-South theories of trade and development, skin shade and labor market outcomes. You guys remember when we talked about colorism? Uh, The economics of reparations, the Atlantic slave trade and the industrial revolution, the history of economics and the social psychological effects of exposure to unemployment. Mm -hmm. Now, he has been a visiting scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation from 2015 to 2016, a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences from 2011 to 2020. 12 at Stanford University, a fellow at the National Humanities Center from 1989 to 1990, and a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors in 1984. He received the Samuel Z. Westerfield Award in 2012 for the National Economic Association, the organization's highest honor. And in 2017, he was named the Political 50 List of the Most Influential Policy Thinkers over the course of the past year. And he has all he was also honored. Uh, by the Center for Global Policy Solutions with an award recognizing his work in the development of the effort to study and reverse racial wealth disparities in the United States. He holds a PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and has published or edited 13 books and more than 220 articles in professional journals. His most recent book is a 2017 publication, For-Profit Universities, The Shifting Landscape of Marketized Education, co-edited with, with Tressy McMillan Cottom. Wow. Dr. Darity, <laughs> we, are, we are honored to have you at the yes. table. Well, Thank you so I'm, much. I'm thrilled to be at the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm amazed that you have the energy and time to be at the table because that 
Hello. An amazing <laughs> professional and academic biography. And so what a real yes. blessing for us to have you here. We we have a lot of listeners who really span a, a variety of ages. Akimini knows this. I mean, this means yes. that we, we could run into folks who are um, our parents' age and we could run into people who are just starting uh, their college journey. And so particularly for the, I think for those folks that are, are entering into that college journey, they oftentimes have lots of questions about vocational identity and they have concerns concerns or interests or passions around justice. And I would love if you could just take a few moments to tell us kind of your 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 professional journey, a little bit about that. How did you get into this type of work um, as an economist and combining kind of an interest uh, in justice? So I have been very compelled by the question of why some people experience poverty, why some mm. countries are poorer than other countries. Okay. from a very early age. When when I was uh, relatively young, my father worked for the World Health Organization. And so in, during the first eight years of my life, we lived in Lebanon and Egypt. Now, both of my parents are Southern black folks from North Carolina, or they were. And so that's part of the story. But I remember that when I was... Uh, maybe about five or six years old when we were living in Alexandria, Egypt, mm. uh, I recognized that if you went up and down the Corniche, that there was actually uh, a pattern of social stratification that was associated with who was on which portion of the beach. Mm. And so as you moved closer and closer to the palace that had been occupied by the ousted King Farouk, mm. uh, the social class of the folks who were on the beach got higher and higher. And the further you, away you were from the palace, the greater the presence of folks who were in the social masses, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of a very visible illustration of social hierarchy to me that I, I had a sense of at a very early age. And so I was very, very curious about the question of why some people had more and others had less. And so by the time I went to college, I figured it must be the field of economics that would provide me with those kinds of answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I started taking economics courses and being very, very dissatisfied with the kinds of analyses that were offered mm -hmm. to explain why people were poor. Mm -hmm. Much of the analysis in economics had a tendency and, and still does to suggest that there's some kind of deficiency or dysfunction on the part of folks who have less mm. that has caused them to have less. And so I decided that I would become an economist so I could change the way in which economists think about these issues. Mm. So that was with the hubris of youth. <laughs> um, you know, I obviously, uh, I don't think I've changed the perspective of most economists, but I think there has been a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And I've been very surprised lately at the degree of interest and seriousness that has been given to a couple of policies that I have been advocating mm -hmm. for, for many years, uh, one of which is... Uh, a guarantee of employment for all Americans mm -hmm. by uh, an assurance that the federal government would provide everybody with a job if they if they are seeking work. And another is the provision of a trust fund for all newborn infants that would be mm -hmm. 
would be financed by the the federal government. So a publicly financed trust fund for every child, mm. uh, where the amount of the fund would vary with the wealth position of the child's family. And as of yesterday, there's suddenly been uh, a, a lot of attention drawn to that, in part prompted by an article that was in the Washington Post about about the proposal. So I may not have transform the economics profession, but I do feel like the work that I'm doing has had some value and appears to be having some impact. Yes, most definitely. And staying power, right, is is the key, you know. So uh, thank you so much for for giving us a little bit of that that insight. And and now can you talk to us about, of course, your work with uh, reparations and and um, but just a a nice little softball question to start. Uh, Can you define reparations for our listeners? What what is reparations? What, What does that even mean? So reparations is, in general, uh, a structure of compensation to victimize populations for the injustices that they've been subjected mm-hmm. to. Okay. Mm-hmm. And thank you. And now I I, I understand that uh, that you and uh, Kirsten Mullen have come up with a, an acronym, if you will, uh, referred to as ARC. And can you uh, unpack that for us about what those letters actually stand for? Yeah, so ARC stands for Acknowledgement, Restitution, and Closure. So okay. the, the premise here is that if there is a grievous injustice that's been visited on a group of mm-hmm. uh, group of people, uh, the, indiv- the, the population that has been either some combination of being the perpetrators and the benefactors of that injustice, mm-hmm. first need to acknowledge it, then second, they need to provide some form of con- compensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there are two forms of restitution. One is redress and the other is atonement. Mm. Okay. Uh, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they are mm-hmm. somewhat different. And then closure means that the perpetrators and the victims come to an agreement that the mode of compensation is sufficient mm-hmm. to... Uh, to bring an end to the claim for additional compensation Mm -hmm. for that particular injustice. Now, you know, if the victimized community is subjected to a new injustice, then the door is open for a new claim. But the claim that's based upon the previous set of injustices that formed the foundation for the compensation would be closed. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I would imagine that some, even some of our listeners who this may relate to their some of their own maybe faith or theological convictions when they hear language like redress, atonement, in many ways that reminds us of, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of a full picture of restorative, restorative justice. Um, Sandy, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the way in which I think the idea of reparation has been removed uh, from some of some of the more famous civil rights leaders. So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about reparation. He, he described kind of coming to Washington to get our check, uh, acknowledging the debt right. that has um, that has been ignored, that ought to be paid to people who have suffered uh, from systemic uh, racism. And so I, I'm wondering um, what your thoughts might be about why reparations as a movement in some way has been removed or sanitized uh, from the memory of the civil rights movement. That's a great question. I'm not sure I have a really good answer. Uh, I know <laughs> that there has long been tremendous resistance mm-hmm 
to the provision of any form of reparations to black Americans. Mm -hmm. And and I mm -hmm. would 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 date that process of resistance to the Reconstruction era in the United States in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, where uh, the formerly enslaved folk were supposed to mm -hmm. receive, and they were promised 40 acres and a mule. Yes, and yes. Uh, there were some African Americans who received that allocation initially, but for the most part, even theirs was taken away from them and restored to the former slave owners. So, so that, that the initial failure to provide the ex-slaves with 40 acres and a mule, I think created, I'm sorry, created mm. the foundation for the types of gross inequalities that mm. we observe today, particularly with mm -hmm. respect to wealth. So, I mean, there's this a long-standing resistance to the provision of uh, of reparations to Black Americans, and I think that's intimately related to the scope of white supremacy and racism mm. in the United States. And I think that there are Black Americans who have been susceptible sure. to that resistance. Uh, you know, folks don't like me to say this, but I think that President Obama is one of the mm -hmm. folks who was susceptible mm -hmm. to that resistance. Uh, he mm -hmm. clearly he was opposed to reparations mm -hmm. for black Americans. Mm -hmm. And so we had the paradoxical situation of a black president who was mm -hmm. against reparations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a great point. Um, and actually, that I was actually going to ask you about that. So why don't I just jump to that okay. question? Um, <laughs> so I mean, there, so there is, uh, and, and I'm glad you said white supremacy, because I think we need to be specific about what we're talking about here. Um, there is this permission, pernicious myth, right, that was, uh, and, and white supremacist myth, if you will, um, about black inferiority, and that in some sense, black people are responsible, right, for their own problems is what the myth holds, right? right? Um, and so this is not just and, white and, people. And that that's also a specific case of the more general sentiment that when we observe people who are in mm -hmm. a deprived position, we frequently uh -huh. say, well, it must be because yeah, sure, of something the, the that they've done wrong. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Sure, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, and you, you you talked about this uh, quite a bit in your in the December 2016 article for The Atlantic entitled How Obama Failed Black Americans. Um, and so so in your own estimation, what needs to change as far as the attitude and sentiment among um, the citizens of this nation in order for reparations to actually become a reality? So I think there has what to be to a recognition that the uh, gross inequalities that we observe that are associated with race in the United States mm -hmm. are attributable to the history of the operation of white supremacy in American society, that uh, whatever we observe black Americans having accomplished or achieved is something that has occurred against tremendous odds and great resistance. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and right. so if anything, we need to interpret what mm. black Americans have done in a far more positive light rather than asserting that there's some type of dysfunctionality. And, and I'll give one example at the outset that tends to surprise people, but for a given level of family income and educational attainment on the part of parents, uh, mm -hmm. younger black folks get more years of schooling and they get uh, more credentials than comparably mm -hmm. aged white white folk and uh so so 
it's it's a case where where mm. blacks do more with less. And another example is the fact that black parents who provide some financial support for their kids' higher education have uh, about one third of the net worth uh, at the median uh, that white parents have who provide no support mm -hmm. for their kids' higher education. Wow. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we hear a lot of stuff about blacks being anti-schooling mm -hmm. and anti-education. Yeah. That's simply not supported by the not evidence. Mm -hmm. That's good. And it's all historical, right? right. Um, thank you so much for um, unpacking that. Now, let's get down to the nitty gritty of reparations. Uh, but what I want to uh, what I found very interesting mm. in reading uh, the book chapter, Economics of Reparations, uh, you argue that Jim Crow provides the strongest case for reparations. So can you explain to our listeners how state-sanctioned state apartheid of Jim Crow actually strengthens uh, the case for reparations, not to pit, obviously, Jim Crow against the transatlantic slave trade and um, chattel slavery, but how is it, because people usually focus on that, which is important too, right? But how is it that Jim Crow provides a stronger case, if you would? Well, the Jim Crow period was an opportunity to mm -hmm. provide uh, full inclusion of the formerly enslaved population into American mm. society. And in fact, the uh, the fourteenth, fifteenth, uh, the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments, particularly mm -hmm. the fourteenth, projected including Black Americans as full citizens mm -hmm. in the United States. But the uh, the spirit of those amendments was never actualized. And yeah. uh, and as I pointed out. You know, we would have a very different economic situation for African Americans had the ex-slaves been given the initial promised allocation of 40 acres and a mule. So mm -hmm. from, from my perspective, there were ways in which African Americans could have been compensated and could have been fully included in American society with the end of right. slavery. And it's the Jim Crow period mm -hmm. that blocked that from happening. And so that's mm -hmm. why I think that the Jim Crow period plays a very significant and severe role in the process of thinking about uh, the historic pattern of oppression of black folks. And I would also mm -hmm. add that we have to keep in mind ongoing racism and discrimination mm -hmm. and devaluation of black lives uh, that continues in the aftermath of legal segregation. Yes. Now, would you, um, I didn't plan to ask you this, but would you also include maybe in your own um, estimations and, and plans for reparations, uh, state sanctioned violence in the form of police brutality, or is that harder to include? Or yeah, any thoughts on that? Uh, no, That's something that, that just does, comes to I mind. I think that does need to be included. And I think it needs to be included mm -hmm. in the context of thinking about uh, mm -hmm. you know, actual estimates of the difference in the way in which mm -hmm. black and white mm -hmm. lives are valued. Okay. Uh, 
And and I'm not going to offer you any of those estimates because that's something in the book. Of course, yeah. That's right. You're going to have to buy the book when it comes. <laughs> and it just means we have to have you back. That's all. We're going to have you and we're going to have you and Kirsten yeah, back. By all means. Excellent, excellent. As, I, as I'm sitting here listening to this conversation about reparations, in some ways, I'm I'm fast forwarding to what what it means what it would mean to live in a society where this actually took place, right? The, imagining uh, the uh, United States government uh, uh-huh. actually owning um, its complicity in uh, the degradation of, of Black people and uh, moving into a place of reparations and what that would also mean for our larger citizenry, how people would then begin to understand what it means to be Black and if Black was something that was now going to be restored economically um, within our system. Uh-huh. And so in that sense, maybe I think the language I think, Sandy, that you've used before is like, what do you do with this idea of of a premium for being black? Or would that be created, this idea, okay, so I'm black, I can identify in this way, so now I can receive these reparations. Yeah. And I'm wondering how we would then begin to make sense out of who would be the people that would that would receive the reparation? How, how could you imagine that being determined, the recipients of kind of this reparation that would take place? Mm-hmm. So what... Kirsten Mullen and I have envisioned as criteria for eligibility for reparations is uh, the criteria are twofold. First, an individual would have to have had an ancestor who was enslaved in the United Mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And then the second criteria is the individual would have to demonstrate that Uh, up to 10 years before the onset of the reparations program that they self-identified as black, Negro, colored, or Mm African-American. Okay. So, you know, the obvious reason for the second criteria is to avoid having people deciding all of a sudden that they're going to be black so they can get access to the Now people are like, oh, now I think I want to be black. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, so, and, and so, in fact, so in, in, in Brazil, with the sure. introduction mm-hmm. of affirmative action, there are people who now mm-hmm. say that they are Afro-Brazilian who mm-hmm. never said yeah. that beforehand. Uh, and, <laughs> and some of them actually don't look mm-hmm. particularly phenotypically like right. the way in which we typically think of folks as looking who are who are mm-hmm. afro ancestry. Yeah. Now, I do have a follow-up question. How how would um one an individual go about obtaining the reasonable documentation to prove that they had at least one ancestor um who was enslaved in the uh United States? How how would one go about doing that? So, there obviously would be a, a significant <laughs> opportunity for genealogist <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> but, uh, but I also think that there might be a, a somewhat simpler way to demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. So if, if you could indicate that you had an ancestor who was an adult in the first post-slavery census, but they don't appear in the censuses that took place while slavery was still underway, then this would suggest that they mm. must have been enslaved because mm-hmm. uh, there there was a separate slave census that was taken, but it didn't typically enumerate individuals. And individuals right. who were enslaved did not appear in the decennial censuses. So 
if they were old enough to have appeared in the decennial censuses, but they did not, then that is an mm. indication that they were enslaved. Got it. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, you know, we're the diaspora, you know, is very diverse. Right. Uh, the African diaspora is very diverse. And so, you know, everybody want to be claiming stuff that ain't supposed to be claimed by them. <laughs> so, which is why yeah. I actually think uh, you uh, trying to uh, build out or center much of the reparation, um, the fight for reparations, if you will, uh, on Jim Crow is very pivotal because I'm thinking about, you know, black immigrants here. As I'm a first gen Nigerian American. And yes, we did have family members in the slave trade, whether they were enslaved in the U.S. or in the Caribbean. And we don't know. Right. Um, that's why I think the ancestor part is important, not relatives. Right. right? Um, and, and, you know, we're and, all con- and I, connected. And I think yeah, for please. folks mm-hmm. who are more recent immigrants to the United States from other parts of the black yeah. diaspora, I think mm-hmm. the claim for reparations has mm-hmm. to be made mm-hmm. against the countries that colonized their there places of origin. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you which for saying a, that because yeah, it's not as if we're not entitled to the one that African Americans right. are going to make for the U.S. government. Sure, sure. Yeah, good. That's that's really um, very important. Um, and that's uh, that's something that is starting to happen, right. too, um, particularly in the Caribbean. Um, so, yeah, thank you for the, for clarifying that. Uh, now, uh, in the economics of reparations, that same chapter uh, that I had uh, referred to earlier, I'm going to quote you here, uh, you and Kirsten, actually. Uh, we found, this is what you say, we found that reparations payments that either mandate or provide incentives for Blacks to spend on goods and services produced by non-Blacks would raise the relative incomes of non-Blacks. Without significant productive capacity in place before reparations, a lump sum payment could actually result in an absolute decline in Black income. End quote. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that for our listeners? I thought that was fascinating. Um, And yeah, so if you could talk to about that, that'd be great. Yeah, I don't don't know if people saw... um the skit that Dave Chappelle did when his program was still on, on reparations. Oh, please explain it. I love Dave Chappelle. Well, the oh, now, hold on, let me qualify that. I love the, the Chappelle all right, show. All right. Now, what have you been doing as of late? Important I'm like, I don't know, brother. I don't know. No, so let me make a, you know, so I love Chappelle show. I quote him about once a week off of the old show. Okay. So I just want to say that. So please unpack this for our listeners. Cause I love this. And so, so uh, you know, one of the points that was made in that skit about reparations was essentially that black folks get reparations, uh, but they turn around and spend it on <laughs> products that are generated by white owned businesses. Right. And so actually, uh, there's uh, it, it, it's it's a transfer that's made to African-Americans, but sure. it ends up being back mm-hmm, in the hands mm-hmm. Of non-African Americans, yeah, and, exactly. Uh, so, so this is an inevitable consequence of a situation where blacks do not have uh, a significant corporate structure that's generating goods that they can purchase mm. from from black-owned businesses. Okay, so mm-hmm. there's kind of two ways of thinking about that that are uh, uh, that are suggestive of some positives. So one way to think about it is that, in fact, the actual goods and services that people are able to buy, which may significantly improve their standard of living, are of value regardless of whether or not they're purchasing them from black-owned or white-owned businesses. It's one way to think about it. 
The other way to think about it is that this is suggestive of what I've referred to as a portfolio of rep portfolio mm -hmm. of reparations being a really good idea, which is to say that one component of a reparations package might be a check that's delivered to every eligible uh, black American, but that there should be other components of it, including a component that would enable people to build wealth through some sort of asset development program, which would be a little bit different from just spending your money on new goods and services, but you would also be building uh, your net worth position in some way. Uh, and we also could have funds that were used for certain kinds of institution building within predominantly black communities. So, um, so the problem of what I'm calling the Chappelle effect, sure, which sure. is the returning <laughs> of the funds to white, mm -hmm. is one that we yeah. have to think through. And I'm suggesting that we can think through it uh, by trying to assess the impact of the goods and services that people might actually buy on their well-being, but also thinking about ways in which we could complement the provision of a direct payment with other kinds of, uh, of benefits that are financed by the reparations so, program. So, I, I, so recently I was having a conversation mm -hmm. with someone who I, I think probably lives kind of in the same similar discipline around economics, um, conservative thinker, uh, socio-politically. And we were talking about this idea of reparations as it relates to people of African descent in, in the United States. And the person responded to me, and I just thought this was fascinating. And I would love to, to hear you process mm -hmm. through this a little bit, Sandy. He's, he said to me, he said, well, black people wouldn't want reparations. I mean, look at what happened with reparations for indigenous people. And I thought, well, first of all, I thought, like, what do you mean what happened with reparations? <laughs> like, have, have, we, have we repaired that? I was so confused. Very, very confused. But I think is. in that moment, and I, I imagine <laughs> that his sentiment might be captured by many other people as well, this sense of thinking that uh, we have made amends uh, as it relates to the disenfranchisement of, of indigenous people. And I'm wondering if there's some way of putting those things in conversation about the mm. impact of... Um, oppressive systems and repairing those as it relates to mm. indigenous folks and people of African descent. If your work has, has looked at that, if there have been any uh, repair done to that group and how would that translate to people of African descent? Or do we often look at those things in, in very separate ways? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one way to think about this is to look at precedents mm -hmm. for reparations internationally, where cases where reparations mm -hmm. have actually been provided. So one of the classic examples would be the funds that were provided to uh, uh, to mm -hmm. victims of the Nazi Holocaust. Yeah. And those funds uh, have resulted in ongoing payments to the present day to survivors of the concentration camps. But also there have been institution building uses of those funds, mm -hmm. primarily for the purposes mm -hmm. of supporting the development mm -hmm. of the state of Israel. So, uh, you know, if, if, if one wants to argue that there, there was some kind of failure associated with the use of those resources, then maybe that supports mm -hmm. the position this person was taking. But I've never actually heard anybody say that, uh, 
the reparations program for mm -hmm. the victims of the Nazi Holocaust has mm -hmm. been a mistake or mm -hmm. uh, has has been has been a bad thing in terms of the quality right. of their lives. Okay, so that's one example. Second example would be in the United States itself with the provision of compensatory payments to the Japanese mm -hmm. Americans who were subjected to incarceration during World War II. And that was not a large amount. I think it was $20,000 per, per person. But again, I've never heard anybody say that those funds were used badly or didn't provide mm -hmm. any kind of benefit to the recipients. So that'd be a second example. Now, mm -hmm. with respect to Native Americans, I'm actually right. not aware mm -hmm. of any full-blown reparations program. Now, now, some people have argued that mm -hmm. the access that some tribal communities have to casino rights uh, mm -hmm. right. is a form of reparations. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's a fair claim, but it is interesting to perhaps examine what the consequences have been for the communities that have truly received payments through casino, casino rights. Because there, there are instances where the tribal community that has, in some sense, the ownership rights to the funds for the casino don't actually get the distribution because of corruption or, or other kinds of issues. But there's a study that Randall Aki has done. He's a, um, an economist at UC, uh, UCLA's policy school. There's a study he's done examining the effects of the allocation of funds from casino rights for the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. And uh, he shows that there have been a host of positive effects on health outcomes, mm -hmm. both for children and for parents, on educational mm -hmm. attainment for the children and general family well-being. So if anything, that would be an example that demonstrates that there's been a genuine benefit from this. Um, and then the, the last thing I might mention is the research that has been done on the provision of lump sum monies to low-income mm -hmm. families where people have said, well, they're probably gonna spend this foolishly and the evidence is quite the contrary, that they actually uh, seem to make more sensible or more wise use of the funds than mm -hmm. more affluent mm -hmm. families that are given lump sum transfers. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, so yeah. so I, I don't know where the example is of, <laughs> right, right. you know, a bad reparations program. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there yeah. just aren't that many also, <laughs> anyway. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, um, as I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, just a lot of the interviews you've given and, and um, articles you've written, I've been thinking about, you know, and, and of course, the point of reparations, right? It is to repair a wrong um, at, in its most fundamental sense. Um, and but there is, um, I guess, is there a way to do so that does not perpetuate the stratification and exploitation that is inherent within and under a capitalistic system, right? So we're thinking, I'm thinking about American capitalism and, 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 and within it, somebody has to be exploited, right? It's just somebody has to be at the bottom, somebody has to be at the top. And I'm just wondering um, how, uh, how we can actually... Uh, receive reparations, right, um, without it actually perpetuating, though, um, that, that stratification and exploitation. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to ask? Um, so so there, there are two different issues. Mm -hmm. One issue is whether mm -hmm. or not we address racial inequality. 
Mm -hmm. Second issue okay. is whether or not yeah. we address inequality in general. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So projects that attempt to address racial inequality do not mm -hmm, necessarily mm -hmm. have as an aim eliminating hierarchy. The goal is mm -hmm. to eliminate mm -hmm. any significant differences across racial lines. So in some sense, what you would be doing is having the black pattern sure. of stratification sure. look mm -hmm. more like the white pattern of stratification. Mm -hmm. okay. So a reparations program would have the impact, or if it was successfully implemented, of making the black economic profile look more like the white economic profile. I think there was a kind of a classic observation that E. Franklin Frazier made when he was looking at the black middle class, uh, where he said that their their ladder was not as high as the white as the ladder went for white folks, and so I guess the idea behind uh, increasing the degree of racial equality is to make the ladder similar in height. Now, uh, mm -hmm. if we're concerned about addressing general inequality, then we need a different kind of program that would be applicable to everyone. Mm. And that's why I've talked quite a bit about this mm. program of the provision of a trust fund for every newborn infant. So I, I don't see that that's necessarily yeah. something that's mutually exclusive from a reparations program. In fact, they could be complementary, uh, but, but the objective would be different. That would be aimed at trying to reduce the degree of inequality across the entire population, change the pattern of hierarchy. Uh, one, one last thought is we may be less concerned about stratification if the bottom most mm -hmm. uh, segment of the population actually had a decent existence. So, yeah. so mm -hmm. we could also think about the question of whether or not we could ensure mm -hmm. that uh, no one lived under po in poverty conditions. We might be less concerned about the degree of inequality if we were sure that everybody had a decent standard of living. Yeah. Mm, yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. That makes a significant difference. Yeah. If the floor was high enough for people to actually have a comfortable standard of living, we may not worry so much about the fact that there are some people who are extraordinarily wealthy. So, so um, you know, there's lots of cynicism around, you know this because you've dedicated your work to this, cynicism around the idea of reparations, right? And there's not only outgroup cynicism, maybe from majority culture or white folks uh, towards the idea of reparation, but even in group, there are African-Americans, as you mentioned before, like Barack Obama's maybe um, avoidance and uh, minimization mm -hmm. of the importance of this topic. So, I'm curious about how how you think that one can fight that or can deal with the cynicism in that. And also, if you yourself have ever once been on the side of, of being opposed to rep reparations and how you may have changed your perspective along the way. Yeah, so uh, uh -huh. to be candid, the answer to your last question is yes. Uh, uh, so I think it was in the late 80s that a Black scholar at the University of Pennsylvania, whose name is, oh, oddly enough, Richard F. America, <laughs> Richard Frank Franklin America, yeah. <laughs> uh, asked me to write the preface to an edited volume that he had put together mm -hmm. called The Wealth of Races, hmm. which was about mm -hmm. reparations. 
And I remember telling him, well, I don't know if this is a particularly good idea because uh, I'm just not sure, sure, you know, this would ever happen. Isn't it kind of absurd? <laughs> and he asked me, well, you know, go ahead, read the essays and then <laughs> you can write whatever you want. Huh. Wow. So I read the essays and I changed my mind. And it's from that point on, so I guess it's circa 1989 or 1990, that I said that this idea of reparations, this is the right thing to do. We've got to figure yeah. out how to make it happen. And so that's the path I've been on since then. But you're correct. Initially, I was a skeptic. Uh, now I think that... Um, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's going mm -hmm. to be a struggle to make it happen, but it's a struggle that needs to be engaged sure. in. <laughs> sure. Well, well, Mr. You went from cynic to champion for reparations. Yeah, I, I guess it's like a, right. a, a revelation can do that insight. Sure. <laughs> right. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The, the, road, sure. the road to Damascus is a very important road. <laughs> Not for sure. We all we all gotta go down that road. <laughs> and so, yeah, and, and you, yeah, exactly. And your friend must have been very confident. He was like, you know, just read the essays. He must have been confident. Yeah, that maybe no, he I, been think, I think he Seriously. was. I think he he, he, hey. he knew somehow that that reading all of these uh, papers would 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 convert me. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's pretty awesome. I was like, he's a pretty confident guy. <laughs> and so, well, Sandy, for just our last, uh, it's really not a question, but we're just really asking you to please tell our listeners um, about your upcoming projects, current projects you're working on, how they can follow you uh, on social media and just where they can keep up with what you're what you're doing, because I, I think we think we believe that your work is worthwhile um, and very important work that our listeners should be um, looking out for and keeping up well, with. Thank you. Um so uh, I am on Twitter, and I have not, no. Full not yet. You don't have one yet. Uh, follow him. Follow him, y'all. You will learn my, a lot. My, 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 my Twitter handle is simply at Sandy Darity, where Darity is spelled D-A-R-I-T-Y. Uh, okay. I also am the director, as you mentioned, of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. And there is a host of material on the website for our center okay. that is related to the topics that we've been talking about today, various kinds of policy initiatives to address inequality, uh, a focus on health disparities, wealth disparities, yeah. educational disparities, political disparities, and uh a wide range of research papers that we've generated, mm -hmm. as well as newspaper and journalistic accounts of some of the work that we've done. So that's the, the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. And our uh, website is simply socialequity.duke.edu, socialequity.duke.edu. So that's a, a great place to see some of the work that we've been trying to do. Great, great. Oh, yes. And what about the book that you're hoping to release maybe this yeah. year? So, so the book is supposed to be called From Here to Equality. Okay. And it is a book that explicitly mm -hmm. and passionately endorses reparations for black Americans. 
It may be somewhat different from other studies on reparations because Mm -hmm. it's predicated on the view that we not only have to take Mm -hmm. into account the injustice of slavery, but as we talked about a bit earlier, the injustice of the Jim Crow period and ongoing racism and discrimination Mm -hmm. in terms of the development of the brief for reparations. Uh, Mm -hmm. The book is also a little bit different insofar as it actually sketches uh, a set of ways in which a reparations program can actually be implemented. Uh, it also suggests some ways in which we could actually put flesh on the bones of the claims that are made by the Black Lives Matter movement, in terms of actually right. having numerical estimates on the differences that are assigned to black and white lives. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, And uh, it has a very, very detailed analysis of the Reconstruction period, which we view as the crucial turning point Hmm. that uh, kept America from dispensing with white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Well, we look forward to reading that book. And God willing, we look forward to having you you back to talk about Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Thank you so much for taking a seat at the table with us, Sandy. We are honored that you you. came. Uh, We really are. Uh, Thank you so much for your work. Um, And of course, we want to thank um, our listeners for also taking a seat at the table with us this week. Uh, Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts using the hashtag TruthTable. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TruthTable or email us your thoughts at AskTruthTable at gmail.com. Now, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on the Satchel Podcast Player. Truth's Table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and we have been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth's Table. Bye, y'all.